Isaiah 9, 6. Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And there the prophet, foretelling the coming of the Messiah, said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it, to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Here's a prophecy from Isaiah, and of course, as we come to the New Testament, we find that prophecy fulfilled there in the story of the birth of Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked in particular at John's account of the incarnation, and John approaches it very differently than does Matthew and Luke, whereas John really is speaking in theological terms of the spiritual significance of the Word made flesh. And last night we spoke about, or last week we spoke about this. The Word was made flesh. John 1.14, He began to be flesh. It says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the fact is, though, the incarnation is God's Word come clothed in human flesh. At that point, He began to be flesh. He took upon Himself a human body. He did not begin to exist. It's very important that you realize that. Jesus did not come into existence at the Incarnation. And John makes that very clear. In the beginning was the, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So the Word of God, the eternal Word of God, took upon Himself a human form. That's what the word incarnation means. It means in flesh. The Word of God took upon Himself a human body. He did not begin to exist, but rather took upon Himself the likeness of men. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 16. Most of you know this verse. We've been over this many, many times. But Hebrews 2.16 says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. When the Word was made flesh, he did not come as a superhuman um, angel and with bright, shining garment with wings and, you know, obviously in a different form. But no, he came as a man. He came it says it took upon him the seed of Abraham. In Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, that great passage which talks about the hypostatic union. Now, that's a theological term speaking of Jesus being fully man and yet at the same time fully God. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it says, But he made himself of no reputation when he came and took upon him the form of of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. He was made in the likeness of created men. 
And verse 8 says, And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So there, when Jesus came to this earth, his likeness, his resemblance, his representation, his image, his identity was that of a man. He came in human form. His, his figure, the way he talked. In fact, as we talked about this morning in the Bible study hour, there were many, most just considered him to be just another man, just a man who, as they assumed, his earthly father was Joseph and mother Mary. They assumed him just to be man, but not to be the divine son of God. But the word was made flesh, and also the word dwelt among us, dwelt among us. And that is, when you really think about that, that is amazing. God coming in human flesh, and not just that, but living right with us in this mess. Okay, <laughs> think about, about God coming in human flesh, but also dwelling among us. He walked amongst his people. He got his feet dirty. He had to wash his hands. I mean, he went from place to place. He dwelt and lived among men. The Bible says he dwelt among us. It means he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. He did not separate himself from men. He did not. He was not disgusted with men and, you know, to stay away from them. But no, he came and he ministered even to the poorest, to the sick, the lame. He lived with and interacted with men. But when he came, we talk about it as the incarnation because he came in human flesh. Did Jesus have a human body? Was he truly man? Well, the scriptures indicate that he absolutely was. He came in human flesh, and it was very important that he did. And we're going to talk about the necessity of that very fact. Jesus had a human body. He was truly man. We see the evidence of his humanity throughout Scripture, in particular from Hebrews. There's so much in Hebrews that ties in with this. I just love it that we've been going through Hebrews. But in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 5, Wherefore, when he, speaking of the Son of God, cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me. And of course, the whole part, whole, you know, six verses there, five or six verses before, beginning of chapter 10, he's talking about the insufficiency of the Old Testament sacrificial system. Because sacrifice did not satisfy you, but when I came into the world, you prepared for me a body, a human body. Jesus was born, just like you, just like me. Of course, probably you were born in a hospital and not in a stable. But nevertheless, he was born as a man. He experienced human limitations. He hungered. Luke chapter 4, verse 2. Matthew chapter 21, and verse 18. He was hungry. He experienced fatigue. He was tired. He grew weary. You know, last night, a lot of you were a little bit weary as you left, went home. I was weary. I fell right asleep. I, fell, I slept soundly, so soundly that my wife had to wake me up and tell me to quit sounding so much. <laughs> but Jesus experienced fatigue. He experienced pain. He experienced suffering. Of course, he was crucified. 
but he also experienced temptation. Not just the physical aspects that we experience, but also the spiritual aspect of our lives. Jesus experienced temptation. And of course, Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 4, both of those passages record for us the time when he was tempted by the devil himself. And you know, we read those passages and we read them and we go through them and we think, well, that's interesting. And, but do we ever stop to consider that probably none of us have ever been tempted by Satan? Do you ever think about that? You know, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. But Jesus there experienced the full temptation of the devil himself. Of course, the Bible says he suffered temptation, experienced temptation yet without sin. Jesus experienced human limitations and he experienced human emotions. Of course, we read in the scripture about his sadness. There when Lazarus had died. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. There's some discussion as to what he was weeping about, but Jesus wept. He wept over Jerusalem. He experienced frustration, especially when he cries out over Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it kills the prophets. He says, How often would I have gathered you as a chicken gathereth her young under its wings, and yet you would not. Of course, he experienced the contradiction of sinners, the opposition of the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those who should have known better. He experienced anger. In Mark chapter 3, when he cleansed the temple and drove the money changers out of his father's house, and he was filled with anger, righteous anger. You know, there's one emotion. Do you ever think about this? What is the one emotion that we don't see expressed in the New Testament? Some have said, well, did Jesus ever laugh? I'm sure there were, he had joy. The Bible talks about him having joy. But do you ever wonder about that? Now, obviously, I'm sure there were times that he laughed. He grew up as a boy, he grew up as, as we did. But you know what? The scriptures do not record Jesus laughing. Do you ever wonder why? What was he known as? The Bible says he was known as a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows. And I believe that Jesus was a very sober-minded, serious person. Not that he did not smile, but Jesus knew why he came. And he was intent upon that. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He suffered. But Jesus came as a man. He experienced human limitations, experienced human emotions. We see the extent of his humanity. Humanity, he was fully human, but he was different from us in that he was without sin. He was without sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 speaks to his sinlessness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For he... Speaking of God, the Father, for he hath made him, the Son, Jesus, to be sin for us. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Jesus never sinned. He never experientially sinned. Now, he was made sin for us. 
there on the cross. He was made sin for us, that who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He was without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 speaks of Him being tempted, like as we are, yet what? Yet without sin. Tempted in all points, like as we are, yet never failing, never falling into sin. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, we read about that. He humbled himself to become obedient even unto death. You see here the extent of his humanity. He indeed suffered temptation. He suffered death. Now, I've been noticing um, just on some of the social media that a lot of our our friends, a lot of people that we've known for years are dying. Just kind of, I don't know if it's a season or, you know, but I, I... Sisters, father-in-law, and other people, or uh, many people have died just here in the last few weeks, people that we've known. And, um, you know, that's a fact. A fact of life is you don't get out without dying, except if the Lord returns and we're raptured. But that's, you know, death is a sure thing. And Jesus died. He experienced death. He humbled himself to become obedient unto death. He suffered. He was made capable of suffering that he might suffer. Scriptures indicate that he became mortal that he might die. Isaiah 53 speaks of this. Of course, it was the plan of God. It was God's plan that he would come and die for our sins. It was a plan and purpose of God. Isaiah chapter 53, let me read some of those verses there for you. In Isaiah 53, verses Four, let's meet at verse four. It says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse five, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. It goes on to tell us in verse 10, it says, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. This was part of God's plan. Of course, his purpose, as it says there in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10, why did he die? Well, he came to die, for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering, through suffering. And so Jesus experienced our humanity. He was fully man, yet also fully God. So how could he be fully man, and how could he be fully God at the same time? Well, that's the miracle of it. Of course, we see the evidence. The evidence, Scripture gives plenty of evidence that he indeed was fully God. The announcement of the angel in Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, I think we... Looked at this earlier in the uh, first service, but in Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, what did the angel say? The angel there says, Luke chapter 1, verse 35, says to Mary, The Holy Ghost shall come upon you, the, the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. The Son of God. 
announcement of the angel, the testimony of John, John's witness in, first, in the first chapter of John, John 1 and verse 29. The next day, John sees Jesus coming unto him. And as he approaches, what does John say? He says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. We see the testimony of the angel. We see the testimony of John the Baptist. And then we see the testimony of his miracles throughout the Gospels, throughout the New Testament. In John chapter 9, there he heals the blind man. The man who was born blind did not know who had healed him, but he said, if this man heals the blind, he must be of God. In Mark chapter 2, verses 3 through 12, here's the paralyzed man that was let down into the room where Jesus was. The crowd was so big they couldn't get into the building, so they crawled up on the roof, ripped up the tiles, and lowered the man down. His friends did. And there's this man dangling through the hole in the ceiling on a, some kind of a stretcher. And Jesus looked around at those who were listening to him, particularly the religious leaders, and he looks at that man, and the first thing he says was, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. And of course... That just caused religious leaders to just, you know, they, they were, their heads were exploding, all right? They, were, they were just couldn't believe what Jesus had just said. They said, who has power to forgive sins but God? Only God can forgive sins. How dare this man say that your sins are forgiven? And then Jesus said, well, what's it easier to do? Forgive sins or heal the paralysis? And I can do both. And then Jesus said, rise up, take up your bed and walk. And he did. And Jesus made his point absolutely crystal clear. He is God. Yes, only God has the power to forgive sins, but Jesus there on earth had the power to forgive sins. And he gave that testimony. And he had the power to heal. Of course, his own claims of relation to his father, John chapter 5, he says, I and my father are one. And when the Jews came to crucify him, what was the reason they gave Pilate? He made himself to be the son of God. And in doing so, he made himself equal with God. And therefore, by our law, he ought to die. We see his claims in relation to his father. John 5 records the witness of John the Baptist. We see the witness of Christ's works, the witness of the father. We see the witness of scriptures there all in John chapter 5. Ample testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, and therefore He is divine. In Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26, our high priest, speaking of Jesus, is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's. It says, for this he did once when he offered up himself. He was sinless. Of course, we see that his, his divinity and his resurrection, he raised from the dead. He prophesied that he would, ra- prophesied that he would rise from the dead. And he also said... I lay down my life, no man takes it from me. But of course, from all appearances, oh, it looked like the Jews had finally gotten rid of him. They'd used Rome, the government, 
to execute Jesus. And by all appearances, it seemed like they had taken the advantage of him. But how many times in Scripture did they take up stones to cast at him and he walked away and says, my time has not yet come. You can't take my life until I give it up. And he willingly gave his life. And then, of course, as he said, I have the power to take it up again. There at the resurrection, after three days, he rose from the dead. We see his fulfillment of prophecy. Luke chapter 4, Matthew chapter 5 speaks of the fulfillment of prophecy. And so many prophecies in the Old Testament were fulfilled. We saw those as we've been going through Hebrews. Look at the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. All of the typology of the Old Testament fulfilled. The Passover. He is our Passover lamb. We see the high priest. He is our great high priest. We see the ineffective sacrifices of the Old Testament. He is the perfect sacrifice. Jesus Christ is the divine fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the great expectation of the Old Testament. We see his ability to give eternal life. John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28, he gives unto all that the Father gives him, he gives eternal life. Of course, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we see his, the testimony of his continuing power to change men's lives. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. He has a new nature. Listen, there is the world of difference the world of difference between an unbeliever and a believer. And let me tell you something, my believing friends. If there is not a difference between you and an unbeliever, then shame on you because you are taking the name of God in vain. You are claiming to be one of His and living like them. If you truly are a believer, you are a new creature. You have a new nature. There is a world of difference. And let me put it to you in scriptural terms. The question was asked, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Or can the leopard change his spots? And it's a rhetorical question because we think, well, of course, the Ethiopian cannot change his skin. His skin is black. And it cannot be changed to white. Same could be asked about us. Can the white man change his skin? Well, I guess he can get burnt to a crisp out in the sun, but he's still going to come back white again. Okay? We cannot change that because that's in our DNA. It's in our makeup. Same thing as it goes with gender, by the way, regardless of the pronouns you might want to use. But anyway, um, let's not go down that trail. But here it is. The Ethiopian changes spots? I mean, his, his, his skin? No. Can the leopard change his spots? Oh, we could go on. Can the zebra change his stripes? No. Then the, answer, the, re, the end of that verse is, so can you do good who are, custom, who are accustomed to do evil? And the answer to that verse is, how does the Ethiopian change his skin? Well, the only way possible would he have to change his nature, to change his essential makeup, which is exactly what God does to the believer. He changes our nature. We are a new creation. It's just as new as if the Ethiopian was given white skin 
or is just as if the leopard had gotten rid of his spots and gotten stripes. Now, we think of that as laughable because that doesn't happen by nature. But what God does with the believer is also supernatural. He changes our nature. And this is, again, his continuing power to change men's lives is the evidence of his divinity. He is God. See the extent of his divinity. How God was he? That's bad grammar. I know that. But, but how God was he? Well, Hebrews answers that question. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Speaking of the Son, who is the creator of all things, he says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, his being the Father's, Jesus was the brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of the Father's person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus is very God. He is absolute divinity in his essence. John 10 and verse 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. But the interesting thing is while he was on earth, he was limited in his expression, in the expression of his divinity. It was limited. You say, well, how was that? Well, Philippians chapter 2 verse 6 Even though he was God, he did not think it as something to be grasped. Okay? And while on this earth, he laid aside his glory. Philippians 2 and verse 7. And when he prays to his father there, he prays. In John chapter 17, he says, Father, glorify glorify me with the glory that I had before the earth was. The glory I had with you before the earth was. And Jesus laid aside his glory. He left the splendors of heaven to come and to live as a man for the purpose of saving his people from their sin. God was come in the flesh. But why? Was it really necessary for Jesus to come in human flesh? Why did he take upon himself the seed of Abraham? Why didn't he come as, um, as an angel? I mean humanly, we think, man, if I was going to come and I was going to rescue the world, I'd want to come with a big, you know, S on my chest and a cape and, you know, be a superhero. Here we go. But that's not how he came. He came in humility. Why was it necessary for Jesus to come in human flesh? Well, this had to do with the purpose of his coming. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 10. In Hebrews 10 verse 10, it says there that he came... Verse 9, the testimony of Jesus is, he says, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He came to do the Father's will. By the which will, verse 10, we are sanctified, or we are made holy. We are set apart. By the which will, by the will of the Father, we are set apart, sanctified, through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There it is. That's the purpose of His coming. It was the will of God that we should be sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. The law stated that the punishment for sin was death. Back in Genesis, and the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. As in Adam, all die. 
from the beginning and for all time, death is, was, will be the penalty for sin. The Old Testament sacrificial system was set in place as a pictorial, graphic reminder that the penalty of sin was death. You go back and note how many animals were sacrificed in the Old Testament. And it's unbelievable. It's amazing. And that was just one year. (laughs) And it was yearly. But a continual reminder to the children of Israel, to God's people there, that the penalty of sin was death. But it was just a reminder. God was not satisfied with the blood of animals. God was pleased with their faith, and He counted them righteous for their obedience to His word. But the sin problem really was being postponed. It wasn't being dealt with. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system was not sufficient. It was incomplete. It was was powerless. The blood of animals, in Hebrews 10, verse 4, it says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Not possible. They were a type, a picture of the reality of the Lamb of God who would come to take away the sins of the world. And because the animal sacrifice could not cleanse away the sin of man, God did not take pleasure. He was not satisfied. Hebrews 10, 6, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, thou hast had no pleasure. Thou hast had no satisfaction. The debt was not paid. Of course, the Old Testament high priests, though they ministered, ministered faithfully that they could only do so for a limited amount of time because they died. They would have to be replaced. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 23 says there, And they truly were many priests, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. They were sinners. The Old Testament priests were sinners in need of atonement themselves. Hebrews 7, 26 and 27, For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who does not need daily, as those high priests did, to offer up sacrifices first for himself, for his own sins, and then for the people's. The Old Testament priests, they had to sacrifice first for their own sins so they could then sacrifice for the people's. And Romans Chapter 3, verses 25 and 26 really shows that the death of Christ defends God's righteousness in postponing the forgiveness of those sins. Of course, Hebrews talks about that also there in chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. And for this cause, what cause? Well, the cause of purging you from your sins. For this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament or the new covenant, that by means of death, 
for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant, or the first testament, the Old Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26 speak to the forbearance of God. Speaking of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25 says, Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or a satisfaction through faith in His blood to declare the righteousness of the Father for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. <coughs> what had God done? God had passed over the sins of the Old Testament saints. They had not been yet paid for because the blood of bulls and goats could not pay for them. God was able to count them righteous because they obeyed by faith. And the scriptures teach that salvation in any age has always been by what? By faith. But how could God be righteous in overlooking David's immorality with Bathsheba? How could God be righteous in overlooking these sins of these Old Testament saints? Well, Christ is the justification. His death is the justification of God's declaring those Old Testament saints to be righteous. And that's the message there of Romans 3, 25 and 26. Verse 26, he says, To declare, I say at this time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. So was it necessary for, for Jesus to come in human flesh? Yes. Sin had to be punished in human flesh. Bible says in Hebrews 9.22, Almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without shedding of blood is no remission. There is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Jesus Christ was made flesh for the purpose of taking upon Himself our penalty of death. Hebrews 2 and verse 9, But now we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. God designed a human body for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. A body has thou prepared me. Therefore, it is absolutely essential that Jesus Christ come in human flesh because God's justice demanded that sin be punished in human flesh not the blood of animals. Of course, this is the, the beauty of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. There in Hebrews. Chapter 10, just as he has said there, it was not possible for the blood of bulls, bulls and goats to take away sins. Jesus says in Hebrews 10, 5, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not but a body hast thou prepared me, and burnt offerings, and offerings and sacrifices for sins thou hast had no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God, I come to do your will. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings, and offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, then says Christ, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Grace and truth by Jesus Christ. He says, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus Christ willingly and gladly took upon himself flesh for the purpose of death. 
Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. There's the purpose for which he came. And of course, what did God do? He punished sin in human flesh. <coughs> God was not satisfied. The sin problem was not settled through the sacrifice of Old Testament animals. It was not satisfied and it was not settled until Jesus Christ paid for our sins with his own blood on the cross. And what did God do to his son there on the cross? He punished him. He punished him in my place, in your place. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3 so clearly demonstrates that, speaks to this fact. Romans 8 verse 3 says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as a sin offering, condemned sin in the flesh. And when you read that verse, you have to make sure you know who's doing what, where the subject is, where the verb is, who is acting, who's doing what. What could the law not do? Well, the law could not make man righteous, because men are lawbreakers. So what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, and remember in chapter 7, he says there's nothing wrong with the law. What was the weakness of the law? Human flesh. Because when the law says it's black, what does human flesh say? It's white. When the law says it's white, human flesh says, no, it's black. The flesh is the enmity with God. The flesh cannot be made subject to the law of God. It will not submit. So the law was, and the law could not change human nature. So therefore, what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God took care of that problem. God the Father sent His own Son in the likeness of human flesh. He sent Him as a man to come and to live a sinless life, fulfilling the demands of the law so that He might fulfill the penalty of the law as a perfect sacrifice. So here it says, God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. If your Bible says for sin, those words mean as a sin offering. An offering for sin. God sent Jesus Christ to be the sin offering that would take care of the sin problem. The offering which would satisfy God. So he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. And in doing so, God condemned or judged sin in what? In human flesh the flesh of His Son. That was the purpose for which Christ came, so that God could indeed judge sin, man's sin, in man's flesh. And He did. He condemned sin in human flesh, the flesh of His Son. So God did punish sin in human flesh, 
And by Jesus offering his body as a sacrifice for sin, he did away with the Old Testament sacrificial system and established himself as the acceptable sacrifice that pleased God. That was the sacrifice that God was pleased with, and that's why there when Jesus was dying on the cross, what did Jesus say? He is, is finished. God demonstrated the fact that he accepted the sacrifices of his son by raising him from the dead. Now he sits in glory at the right hand of the Father. This is why the incarnation is absolutely essential. This is why it was absolutely necessary that Jesus Christ come in human flesh. A man must die for the sins of men. A man must die for the sins of men, and yet that man must be sinless to be an acceptable sacrifice. Therefore, that man must also be God. Jesus is the God-man. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. And of course, Hebrews 10.10, we see that it was God's will that we are sanctified by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Of course, all of this together, put together when we think about the incarnation of Christ, there's one other thing I want to point out. In Hebrews chapter 4, the end of the chapter there, seeing that we have a great high priest, that is Jesus, who has passed into the heavens. He's the Son of God. Let us hold fast our profession. Verse 15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We don't have a high priest that doesn't understand us. We don't have a high priest who just doesn't know what we're going through. He was made flesh. He lived and dwelt among us. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a sympathetic high priest. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows what we're going through because he's been through it. And he sympathizes with us. He is compassionate. So often we're not. Come on, buck up, get over it. But what does Jesus do? He's compassionate. He has compassion on us. Because of this, you know, we have a high priest who understands us, and therefore we're supposed to come boldly to receive grace from him. And folks, that is the significance and the necessity of the birth of Christ. I know it's an abbreviated form. We could talk much more about it, but really, simply put, that is what... That is the story of Christmas. That is the essence of it. It's the incarnation. It's God's greatest gift to mankind to meet the greatest need of mankind. God come in human flesh to save his people from their sins. Are you his people? Do you belong to him? And that is the most important question. 
Because that question alone will decide where you spend eternity. Do you know him? Listen, as we go through this season, parents, make sure that you're pointing your kids to Christ. Make sure you're instructing them in the scriptures. And be careful. Don't be caught up all in the, the busyness and the commercialism of the season. But take the time. Take the time to really reflect, to instruct, to instruct yourself, to encourage yourself in the Word as you read about the Word made flesh, Jesus, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the greatest gift. Lord, the gift that met the greatest need. Your Son, Jesus Christ, who came as a man, though fully God, come to save his people from their sins. And Lord, I pray that each one here today would examine themselves. Lord, we are to work out our own salvation with trembling, Lord, with fear and trembling. Lord, I pray for our children, Lord, and those who are still young and don't understand, Lord, that we as parents would be faithful to instruct, bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Lord, we thank you for this season in which we take the time to reflect upon your birth and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ there on Calvary. Lord, may it be precious in our sight, may it be precious in our minds, may it not be something that we just discard as something we already know, Lord, that we would meditate upon it and be blessed. Thank you for your love for us. May we love you in return, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.